In this episode, we talk about some topics that might be triggering. So please do check the show notes for content warnings and feel free to skip this episode if it's not right for you. Hi, I'm Dr. Alex Fullard. I research childhood trauma and embrace at Telethon Kids Institute. You're listening to Embracing the Mind, where people who have experienced mental health challenges share their journey with me. I also talk to researchers about the latest treatments, data, and insights into mental health. Today's first guest is former journalist and soon-to-be teacher, Luke McPherson. As a kid, Luke struggled with a diagnosis of depression. It led him down a path of self-stigma where he felt he just needed to toughen up. Now, Luke is an ambassador for the work we do at Embrace at Telethon Kids Institute and a champion of suicide prevention research. Next up, we have Megan Ansell a clinical PhD student who studies self-stigma in teenagers with mental health conditions like depression and anxiety. Megan explains self-stigma, how it's different to other types of stigma, and why it's important to talk to teens when doing research in this area. So today we're joined by Luke McPherson. Luke, would you like to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Luke. I... I was just doing the math on my fingers then. I <laughs> sort of had about a decade-long mental health journey. I'm yeah. um, 24 years old uh, and, yeah, here to, here to have a chat, I guess. Yeah. yeah, I'm really excited to talk to you about your journey. So I guess a lot of people struggle with mental health issues and often we find that the same people, they have these negative attitudes or thoughts about themselves, which includes this thing called internalised shame where you feel quite shameful about your experiences. And the research, it shows that this is called self-stigma. Have you heard of that before? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, Luke, before we get into that, I would like to know a little bit about your journey. And like you said, you've you've kind of had your own mental health struggles in the past. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Yeah, so I guess I'd, I'll put the date on it and say the, the decade long. So when I was uh, in high school, I ended up, there was a bit of bullying going on and ended mm. up in a school counsellor's office and basically would go once a week for a little while and we'd mm. just have a chat. And then after sort of four to six months, she sort of said to me, oh, do you think maybe the way that you're feeling there's some sort of underlying things going on with you? And I was like, I don't really understand what you mean. And mm. she said, well, I think you might have depression. Right. And when I was a when I was a kid and growing up in like the early two thousands, like depression, anxiety, mental health were, and even therapy was sort of taboo. They were yeah. things that we didn't really talk about or discuss. Um, and I was sort of blown away, like, oh, oh, god, okay. What, did you even know what it was? Not, not really. And yeah. I definitely didn't know how you work out whether or not you've you, got it. You have it. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, I'm thinking like I'm a little bit older than you. Yeah. You know? I've got probably six years on you, I mm. think. Quick maths. <laughs> and like thinking back, you know, I, I had anxiety. Yeah. And that was diagnosed when I was, I think, 14. Yeah. And I was the only person I knew mm. that had a diagnosis, but we like we didn't even talk about it. Yeah. So thinking about kind of you at that time, did you talk to your friends about it? Uh, I didn't, I probably talked to two or three friends. I remember one particular one, like I was sitting, I was sitting at a, a Nando's in Mount Lawley with oh, a friend of mine yep. and I, and I told her and it was, it was like I, to, I was telling her I had a, a week to live. It was like this right. massive lump in my chest, like feeling so weird about right. telling someone that 
this was what was going on with me. Um, yeah, at the time it felt like I'm the only person I know mm. who has depression. It's this dark cloud that people mm. don't talk about. I'll tell you, I remember the first time I told my mum and dad, who have definitely been massive supports over the last decade, but the first time I told mum and dad I'd gone, I'd done the, one of the tests mm. with the school counsellor, went home and she said, oh, yeah, you have depression. And I was like, well, I'm probably going to tell mum and dad. So I'm sitting there crying in my room. Mum comes in. What's wrong? I tell her. Then dad comes in. And me and mum are sitting in my bed and dad's sitting across. And I said, oh, like, I have depression. And he was like, no, like, no, you, you don't. He's in sort of denial. Yeah, like, it. you're not how I see people because I'm a doer. Like, I do things. I yeah. keep active, all this stuff. And he's like, no, like, people with depression, they're like, sit in there they they can't get out yeah. of bed they can't go and do anything like that's that's not you like yeah. i don't understand that's not how i see you yeah so um, he had in his mind like the stereotypical yeah. person who can't literally do anything get out of bed yeah and yeah. we know that that's not what depression looks like for everybody yeah how did you navigate that how did you do, like it sounds like you almost had to convince him about this thing that you were really upset about. Yeah, and it was really hard because I still to this day, like there's some things that I feel mm. that I don't know whether they're natural or I don't know if they're real or if they're um, sort of manifestations of my own illnesses and stuff. So, yeah, it was it was really challenging and obviously this sort of cloudy head that you have when you're a teenager, you've got this new diagnosis I suppose all the things that you're trying to navigate and you can't clearly see what's actually going on in your head you don't really a lot of the time you don't know what you're feeling it's this sort of map and then you've got to try and outline that to a very logical father (laughs) and try and make sense of of that yeah it was it was really hard uh and it probably took a good couple of years for us to get to that point where he would understand Mm. Um, and at that time uh, sort of after a couple of years of of being in this intense sort of depressive state I started to become suicidal and have thoughts of suicidal ideation and then that became a new journey of trying to get dad and mum to understand Mm. understand that as well. Wow so that was a couple of years after you kind of had this diagnosis were you seeing a psychologist or a mental health professional in between yes. that period of time? Yeah. So I'd seen school psychs, a couple, they'd been leaving the school psych industry. They're, people leave a lot, which is really hard because yeah. you have this sort of support network and then it gets ripped out from under you. So that was something that I I found challenging. So probably within, my, within the first uh, 12 months of being diagnosed, I'd probably seen three different Wow. Yeah, which was really challenging and then had gone to – had got a mental health care plan and, like, talked to my GP. I remember that being a pretty significant moment as well, sitting – there was a lot of, yeah, meetings with mum and dad and either a school counsellor or a GP or something. So, yeah, um, yeah, I was seeing people all along, but if I'm honest, yeah, I probably wasn't putting – wasn't sort of – I was just a kid, right? Yeah. So you don't understand the significance of the things that you need to get on top of. And no, I mean, you're a kid, so – Yeah, and you- someone gives you homework. 
a yeah. worksheet of oh you're not doing it <laughs> yeah fill out this feeling thermometer no way you've like, got you've got I've so got much to study else. for exams go away exactly not- you've got a chemistry exam in the morning <laughs> yeah. no yeah. I'll, I'll do that later yeah 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 yeah, yeah. Chemistry, probably not. I wasn't smart enough for that. Maybe, uh, yeah. It was the first thing that came to my mind. I didn't do chemistry. It's a bit either. more about it. Yeah, you than me. Um, but yeah, it was, it was, yeah, really sort of. And I'm still getting to this stage where I'm starting to take a lot of responsibility mm. for my own feelings. But yeah, it was, it's a journey. It's so crazy. Yeah. So I can actually hear. My next question was about self stigma and whether you experienced it, but I can actually hear it. I can hear it in how difficult it was for you to tell your friends and your family and how difficult it was to go and see a GP, which I can completely empathise with. I remember the first time I went and got a mental health care plan, I was sick with anxiety for Mm. days before. Can you tell me a little bit about your experiences of of self-stigma in those kind of early teenage years? Yeah, so I guess I've probably got to go back in time. Once I got the diagnosis about the depression and the anxiety as well, I started realising that a lot of the things that I'd felt throughout my childhood were actually telltale signs of a child with sort of quite intense anxiety, but I never really Mm. had looked into it. But, yeah, in terms of self-stigma, I can remember sitting at a GP's office the first time uh, I was getting a mental health care plan, mum on one side, dad on the other, my GP who I've seen since I was a kid. Oof. And it's like, it's like far out, like there's something wrong with me. Yeah. You almost feel like you're in trouble. Yes. Yes, you do. And I filled out the first, um, you'll know, what's the depression? The, das. Yeah. Yeah, Filled das. out the first one yeah. of that. And the first thing the GP said, he was like, whoa, is this how you're actually feeling? Oh, Yeah. And I was like, "Yeah, have I done it? Like, have I done, <laughs> done it, it right? Um, yeah. Like, what's am I? And then you're like, am I feeling that? Am I just? Do yeah, I need you just, question yourself. Do I need to just harden up? Maybe like, yeah. Is everyone and you know going what? through this? It is. When we talk about self stigma, there's a reason we feel this way, and, and mm. it's. I think a lot of it is society being really toxic. Yeah. And I have a lot of people nowadays asking me, like, oh, do you think we're overdiagnosing? Do you think that, you know, depression, anxiety, even things like autism, like, mm. do we overdiagnose? And my opinion is, no, we're just better at picking it up now. Yeah. And we talk about it now mm. because it is incredibly hard to talk about. And I think people having that, you know, just toughen up, you know, back in my day, we just got on with it. Well, that's not helpful, is it? No. <laughs> it's not particularly helpful when someone's going through a hard time. Yeah, it was Yeah, it was hard. You feel like, and still even to this day, like if I was to say I'm definitely better at managing my own anxiety, depression, OCD is another diagnosis I have, so I'm definitely better at dealing with all those three. But the self-esteem mm. and the self-stigma, something I'm still working on, even I'm medicated nowadays, so I yep. take a pill every day and sometimes yep. I look at it and I'm like, I just wish I didn't need that. You almost mm. feel like this pill is a s- symbolic little tablet of you not being quite right, of there being something wrong with you. Mm. Like, because I just wish that, and everyone goes through it, lots of things, yeah. but I wish that I could just be one of those people that just gets out of bed and just wants to be a part of it and feels like they have 
everything in their being to be a part of it. But through all this journey, I'm like, there's something wrong with me. Mm. I'm different. People aren't, don't feel the way I do. And that's been, yeah, and then obviously beat yourself up. Yeah. Sometimes I'm like. I can hear it. I can hear it in your voice. Yeah. Sometimes I'm like, you know, F, I wish, <laughs> like, I wish you'd just be able to be mm. normal and be in social situations or yep. go to work or go to school or deal with people and just just be yep. like everyone else. Oh, Luke, I, I think that is such a common sentiment. I have that, mm. you know, and yeah. I think from the outside you just can't tell what is going on in someone's life, mm. can you? Yeah. It's like, yeah. I, I don't think I have spoken to a person, honestly, in my 30 years of life that has it all figured out. Yeah. Like everyone's got their own stuff, don't yeah, they? Yeah, yeah, 100%. And, you know, I'm, I'm really glad that we're talking about this and that you're being so honest because mm. this sort of, this is how we break down stigma, right? Yeah. Because me looking at you, I think you've got it together. Mm. I think you look great from the outside, <laughs> you know? You're like, you've got it all sorted. Yeah. But- you know, that's it's incredibly validating to hear that you, me, we all go through this stuff, this, yeah. this self-stigma. And that's actually, sorry if I can, Yeah, that's actually part of it. Like you look like you've got it all yeah. together yeah. and maybe I actually do. Like maybe life is pretty good for me, mm. but for some reason there's a voice yeah. or a chemical wiring in my head yeah. that says actually you're doing it wrong, you stuffed yeah. that up, you're not going very well, everyone's better than you. This is This is – what depression, anxiety, this yeah. is what they do, right? Yeah. This is the, 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 the voice in your head. And I, I noticed you said OCD before mm. as well. I, I was diagnosed with OCD when I was yeah. 15, I think. Mm-hmm. That's a tough one. <clears throat> yeah, I feel like it almost manifested from the other two. Yeah. The OCD becomes – so I was um, – when I was really depressed, my room was always messy. Mm. I'd forget I'd forget to do things. I'd lose a lot of things and yeah. that became a thing, particularly with my mum. She was always on my back about losing things because yeah. I'd like yeah. – and I went to a really nice school and like, I'm very privileged, very privileged guy. That's probably why I look so good from the <laughs> Um But I would lose – like I lost my school blazer one time and I remember it being like those things are so expensive oh, and no. it was like this massive thing for mum. So – my OCD started to manifest in making sure you always yep. knew where everything was. Everything needs to go in a spot in terms of cleaning. Like these clothes I'm wearing today, I'm wearing them for probably two hours. I'll yep. go home, they'll be washed. Yeah, okay. Like, so you still struggle with that now. Yeah. yeah. And a lot of it is it's sort of almost me wanting to prove to people the things in terms of self-stigma and self-esteem that people think mm. I'm uh, – people think, you know, I'm – messy or I'm lazy or I'm this or I'm that. So I obsess over trying to mm. prove to myself that that isn't the case. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. I bet that no one actually thinks that. It's just what you think other people yeah, are thinking. 100%. I was yeah. a teenage boy. Yeah. Like teenage boys have messy rooms. That's just part of it. Yep. Whereas now I'm my stuff's all folded in my drawers. Like I need to make mm. sure I don't like the feeling of – and then, like, OCD, obviously there's certain stuff about, like, tactile stuff. Like, I don't like the feeling of sweat mm, on my body. That okay. really irritates me. I don't like when you're walking bare feet 
on the carpet and you can feel sand because it's like your room's messy. Yes. You're unclean. Yes. Like all this stuff that started to manifest. So, yeah, that's something I'm still sort of – Yeah. Wrapping my head around. It's a really interesting. <laughs> it is. It's it's super interesting. And it's, yeah, yeah it, it, it impacts a lot of people. Mm, yeah. So you're an avid exerciser, right? Yeah. You run. Yeah. How does that go with the sweat? Shirt off all the time. <laughs> right. Yeah. And people make fun of me. Like my brother makes fun of me at the moment. <laughs> like whenever I walk around the house with my shirt off. Yeah. So the other day I got out of the shower, I was wearing a towel and I had my shirt off and he was like, oh, going for a run. Because I run, <laughs> I run with my shirt off. But it's very much like as soon as I start to sweat, like yeah. get this shirt off. Yeah, right. Like, um, yeah, I'll always take shoes and socks off. Like I don't like feeling. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But I don't like yep. sweat straight in the shower, straight everything. That's clean. so interesting because from the outside you would see that, right? I'd mm. see you running with your shirt off and I'd be like, oh, that guy's fit. Yeah. He's, he's just a marathon runner, you know, like, that's what they do. Yeah. I mean, when I go to the gym, everyone takes their shirt off and they're exercising. I'm like, oh, my God. Yeah. But you just don't know what's going on inside someone's head, do you? Yeah, 100%. Even with the, um, like, the washing. I was hanging out washing last night and mum was like, oh, you're very good at doing your washing. Yeah. And even in the back of my head I'm like, yeah, I'm probably so good to a yeah, from the to outside. To the other way, it's yeah. probably a little bit unhealthy. Yeah. The type of stuff that I- 100%. And that's the thing with OCD because it's like I'm probably unhealthy when I obsess over what I eat, yeah. when I obsess over washing, when yeah. I obsess over things because I've been f- fat and lazy throughout parts of my life where I didn't like myself. Well, that's what you say to yourself. Okay, yeah. Sorry. From the outside, <laughs> perhaps not. Yeah, <laughs> but they're actually like- things that society deems as good. Mm, Exactly right. Exactly right. And then we go into the territory of like, you know, disordered eating Mm. and, uh, you know, body dysmorphia and those sorts of things because it really, everything really is on a spectrum. Yeah. And you've got too good. I say that with inverted commas because it's not good. And then you've got the other end where you're deemed as lazy. You know, I know a lot of from the outside, very successful people and they work here with me and their desks are disgusting. Mm. But they're so successful. They're so, like, brilliant, intelligent, but they're messy. Mm. And you can't tell from the outside what someone is like, you know. Yeah. So I want to talk about how you were kind of dealing with all of these thoughts of, and you still do by mm. the sounds of things, of self-stigma, we all do, right? Now, research shows that self-stigma is related to lower self-esteem and lower confidence. Do you think that you were experiencing that? 100%. Yeah. Yeah. Right on my little notes. Um, <laughs> still am. Still am, uh, yeah. yeah. So it's a, it's still a thing, it's still a journey that you're going through. Yeah, there's still definitely a lot of time where I don't back myself, mm-hmm. don't think I'm worthy of certain things. Um like love is one I'm dealing with at the moment. Yeah, right. So like I'm single and I'm I find myself quite often grappling with whether I'm worthy of someone loving me. Wow, um, that's a big one. Yeah, that's pretty significant in terms yeah. of uh yeah, life. Um Do you think and even, that just on that, yeah. because I think that's really that's a big point and that's very self-reflective that you've come to this realization. Yeah. Like that's You've obviously done a lot of work, right? Mm. This this kind of self-stigma and 
Because a lot of people have depression. A lot of people have anxiety. Yeah. A lot of people have OCD, actually. Yeah. Do you think it, that it's the self-stigma that is impacting the relationships that you have? Yeah, there's definitely yeah, there's definitely a source of shame. Yeah. A source of being different. Yeah. And wondering if whether or not it's it's actually your fault. Even and it's really interesting because I caught myself just 30 seconds ago when you asked that question. Yeah. I'm like, what am I what am I doing? Even here, like Like here talking to me. Yeah. Wow. Which is so interesting that it just yeah. came up, but I'm like Sitting here talking about all of these things, it's like, are you worthy of? There's people that go through worse stuff than you. There's people like you've got a pretty good life, man. Like, what are you doing yeah. just sitting here? Which is so interesting that it just came up. But that is very interesting. Yeah, that's how. Yeah, sometimes that's just how I've. Yeah, that I feel that I'm not worthy. Even being on this podcast, I feel like. Yeah. Right. My issues aren't. I'm not worthy of it. Like, I'm not You know what? Noteworthy. I hear that all the time. Yeah. I hear it all the time. Mm. People who are struggling and just don't, I guess, open up. Mm. And even young kids, right? So I work with kids that are, you know, from, from four years old up. And I hear that same sentiment like, oh, other people have it worse than me. Mm. It doesn't mean that you don't suffer. Yeah. And that you don't experience sadness and grief about what you're like, what you're feeling. Yeah. yeah. And can I just say, you're definitely worthy. We're very excited to have you on the podcast. Um, yeah. One, I think my first ever school psych that I saw, she, I, I sort of went with the classic line of, you know, there's people way worse. Mm. I told her all these horrible things that. But then gave it the caveat yeah, of it's not that but bad. there's people worse than me. Yeah, yeah, it's not that bad. Yeah. I did the same thing. Yeah. Yeah. But there's she sort of said to me, and it was so interesting and always changed the way I feel. She was like, There is always someone worse, but by that logic, there's only literally out of the seven or eight billion people in the world, there's one that's allowed mm, to whinge. That's it. There's only one person deserving. The yeah. And yeah. they're probably They'll probably die in like 30 seconds. Exactly. It must they're, be pretty bad for them. They're suffering quite badly. Yeah. So when you put it that way, we all have a right to, mm. and it's about doing it respectfully. I feel like I, when I talk about my issues, I do it respectfully mm. um, and acknowledge that I'm pretty privileged. Like there's stuff afforded to me in my life that people couldn't even dream of. Um, but I think. It's also important and I have a podcast in, yeah, um, but I talk to people that are really cool on my podcast yeah. who do great things Yeah, and it's important. I try to sh- get them to share that their lives are really cool but they still oh, face the challenges. Everyone suffers. Yeah. That's what I, you know, I've said it before. You don't get through life unscathed. Mm. No one does. It doesn't matter how privileged you are. Yeah. Everyone has something going on. Yeah. And my little um, stat that I always sprout everywhere, every talk that I do is, you know, 75% of the Australian population have experienced trauma. Mm. Yeah. That's three quarters. Yeah, that's a lot. That's a lot, right? And that doesn't matter where you live or how you live. You know, everyone suffers at some point. Yeah. So it's it, yeah. There's there's always someone worse off, but it doesn't mean that you yeah. can't experience. 
Well, well you can't experience suffering and also receive help. Yeah. That you're not deserving of help. Yeah. Everyone deserves help. One thing it just sparked my mind as well with the with doing this podcast, like a lot of my experiences, one aren't like a lot of the trauma that I've been through have been gone through by a lot of different people like mm. a lot of the trauma happened to like with grief and stuff and they affected a lot of other people so i feel sort of weird being like but i'm the one talking about it does that make sense like yeah I, it, feels it does like sometimes it does it feels make like sense sometimes you question yourself and you're like why does everything have to come back to you <laughs> is that make sense? it does yeah. it does but i also think it's really important and that's actually what i was i was going to ask you this later but i'll ask you now go for it so i think that you're pretty special because uh, hear me out. No, I'm happy to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> I think you're pretty special because not everyone is as vulnerable as you. Mm-hmm. So I've actually heard you speak before and that was something that I picked up on is that you tell your story with such vulnerability that not many people have gotten to and you're very reflective. You've obviously been working on yourself for many years. Still Sounds out. exactly. It's never ending, but you've you've gotten to a point where you're very self reflective, and that's something I really admire is people who are really vulnerable and just put it out there because I guarantee you someone is going through, if not a lot of people are going through similar experiences to you. So I want to ask, why did you start being vulnerable? When did it start? Why did it start? And why do you think it's important? Uh, it's threefold. This will be a long answer. Good. I think it started with the story I told about my dad where I first told him about the depression and he said, I don't understand. Mm. So it's, I think that sort of manifested itself for me into people at home aren't going to understand. Mm. So it's almost a form of therapy that I'm going to start talking to yes. other people and share my cards of vulnerability. Yeah feel like the strength of bond between a child and their parents is so strong. But I remember I did a talk at school in front of, like, 40 of my peers. Your own school? Yeah, on a retreat, yeah. Wow. Yeah. That's scary. It was, but it was it was a source of therapy. And yeah, you it feel, was cathartic. Yeah, you yeah. feel better. Like, and I think it's, it's – I think probably part of it, and you'll probably – not like me saying this, but part of it, I wanted a bit of probably wanted a bit of sympathy okay. and wanted people to to understand if I had failings in X, Y, Z, there's something else going on in my life. So why do you think I wouldn't like that? Uh, because I feel like people, you, you, I feel like you wouldn't want me to say that some of the me speaking out was seeking. Seeking help. Well, sympathy. That is, that's yeah. that's comfort, that's yeah. support. That's not a bad thing. Okay, that's interesting. Yeah, that's that's how I see it anyway. Yeah. If someone comes to me and tells me their story and I make them feel better by offering them sympathy, well, that's great. Yeah, it's an interesting way. I'd never thought about it that way. There you way. go. <laughs> sympathy <laughs> so- <laughs> would be like, you know, stop complaining. No. Stop seeking sympathy. No. Okay. So, sorry, I interrupted. Go on. No, that's okay. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it started to – I wanted people to understand where I was coming from, probably wanted people – and I loved the feeling 
that talk that I gave at the school retreat, afterwards people came up to me and, and I was just immersed in so much love, mm. more than you feel like. And with depression, you you could have these massive highs and then you forget them so quickly. Mm. So you Focus keep, on the negatives. You keep searching for it. Yeah. So I kept talking to people. I kept being vulnerable, kept being candid because that was some of the truly, that was some of the times where I felt most loved. Mm. We're all just looking for Oh, that's love, it. Really, aren't yep, we? We really are. That's what humans do. Yeah. And then sort of the second part of it, I said it was threefold. So then it started to be about helping people. Started being like, what I'm going through really, really sucks. Mm. So I want to try and inspire or yep. uplift or show other people that it does get better or yep. it's It's okay. Yeah. And then sort of this is a bit more Meta, but the more you talk and the more you listen to other people talk mm. or the more you talk and people respond, yep. it's like actually everyone's going going through it. Yeah. And, and if you can influence other people to be yeah. open and vulnerable, yeah. we can try and get rid of self-stigma. Maybe, yeah. Hopefully that'd be good. Wouldn't that be good? <laughs> uh, I don't know what we talk about on podcasts though. We'd have no, to come up with something else. But you know what? If we could do that, I'd be happy. We'll just get rid of the podcast. Everyone's happy. Okay. It's fine. All right. That's fine. <laughs> um, but there's, yeah, it's, um, and now I find people in my own, and it's not very often. I wish it was more often because mm. I love chatting about this stuff mm. now. Um, but I find people in my own life being vulnerable with me or mm. coming to me and understanding like two particular things come to mind where I've got a friend who talks a lot about their own anxiety with me and we're mm. open and we're vulnerable and, and candid. And then I have um, a relative who's talking about their anxiety and the depression that that leads to and stuff. And both those guys know that I get it. Yeah. And that it's not it's not a massive, horrible thing. Mm, it's not taboo. No, they don't have to be scared to talk about it yeah. because they'll say something and I'll say, I think that. Yeah. And sometimes I'll say, I think that, and also I think a bit about this, and they'll go, well, too, I don't want to talk about that, and we mm. and we won't go into that. Okay. But one day maybe they will. Yeah. So, yeah, I find, yeah, it's just breaking down barriers. It's really cool. And, yeah. and I am still have that self-stigma of, are you doing this for attention? Are you doing it for sympathy? Mm. Are you doing it for a pat on the back and for someone to tell you that you're actually doing okay? And probably there was times in my life and times in my, you know, championing, breaking down stigma where that was the case. Mm. But I truly don't think it is anymore because I don't I don't need people to wrap their arms. Obviously, it's lovely, but I don't need people <laughs> to give me a hug and tell mm. me I'm doing okay anymore because I know, I know I'm going to get there. Mm. So now I think it's more about others seeing me as an example of – it's okay. Yeah. And also me talking and then people coming back to me and going, hey, I feel that way. And they're going, awesome. oh, cool. Yeah. That's that's sweet. And that's really cool. What's really interesting, there's been nothing, well, there's probably one or two things, there's been nothing that I've talked to someone about that someone hasn't mm. either directly or down the track hasn't said, oh, yeah, I thought yeah. that once. Yep. Yeah. Literally everything you've spoken about to me today I've heard. Yeah. Other people experiencing. Mm. I've experienced a lot of it myself. Yeah. Like it's it's unfortunately universal. Mm. 
Yeah. Yeah. So I want to talk about kind of where you are now. Okay. So you've really, you're still on this journey. We all are. And you've seen, well, you, you said that when you were a teenager, you, you were seeing counsellors and, and <laughs> sounds like it was quite a rotating door for a little bit. Yeah. Can you tell me about kind of your journey through seeking help and where you are now with it? Yeah, so as I said, I'm medicated. That was that was a sticking point with Yeah. With it is for a lot of people. More with mum and dad, particularly dad. And I wanna preface this by saying I talk a lot of a lot of my journey, there's been barriers with dad, but there's no one like I love my dad and I wanted to just say shout out. Rob, because you'll be listening <laughs> and you'll be like, oh, he's been picking on me a lot, but <laughs> it's not the case. He's he's incredible. Um, very lucky for my whole family. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, medication was big. was a big sticking point. When did you start medication? I was 18. Yeah, okay. Maybe I wasn't. Maybe I was 17. Mm. No, I reckon I was 18. Anyway, I was an adult and I yeah. said to him, look, I basically said to him, because I'm, because I guess I'm so fortunate with my family. I've always listened to them because they've done a lot for me, and I feel like it's the least I could do is give them the time of day and be respectful. And we, I think we all listen to our parents in some way, even if it's not. I mean, I'm not saying that your parents yeah. were helpful, but there's such a huge impact on our lives. 100%. Like I, I listen to my parents. I, yeah. You know, it's it it is what yeah. we do. They guide your thinking for a lot of your life. Well, they they kind of shape who you are. Yeah. 100%. So yeah. Yeah. And I remember one day he, I'd been and I'd been talking to a psychologist and had got to the point where I was like, this is probably going to end quite, I was, trigger warning, I was probably going to kill myself. Yep. So you were quite suicidal. Yeah. And. And not medicated at the time. Yeah. And. How long had you been feeling like that? Uh Close to two years oh, without medication. Wow. That would have been a heavy burden to carry for a long time. Even still. So we talked about once depression started to be sort of talked about, but suicide still like we it's still a, have a yeah. long way to go and still it's really confusing to wrap your head around. Yeah. And I think people shy away from it because they're worried that they'll say the wrong thing. Yeah. Like yeah. have you talked to your friends about that before, about feeling suicidal? This is the weird thing. Probably not directly. Yeah. Like I'll put so up an Instagram post yep. or I'll put up a video yep. and they'll see it yep. or I'll go on a podcast or yep. something and send them the link and yes. they'll listen yes. and go, that's great. But I would never say to them directly. I, I was suicidal. Yeah. Or I, I wanted to do this. Yeah. 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 Probably. Yeah. And it's sort of a weird thing about the closer you are to someone, you feel like the less likely you want to tell them because it's going to hurt them. Yeah. You don't want to hurt these people. Yeah. So I basically, we, we'd been driving somewhere and I got out of the car and he was on one side of the car and I was on the other side of the car and I was like about to get in the car to go to the doctor yeah. to basically say, I want to be medicated. Yeah. And I was like, hey, going to the doctor, I'm going to get him to put me on the best medication and I know you don't want me to but I feel like if I'm not on it this is going to end quite badly and Mm. I know you don't want me to be medicated but you also don't want me to be dead so I'm going to do this. How did he react to that? He was like okay. Yep. Serious. 
yeah, he was, he's very logical yeah. thinking. And yeah. as I said, if you break stuff down for him logically, and that was the that was quite an easy one to do. Yeah. And then yeah, it started. Uh, yeah, it didn't get it didn't get better. And obviously, it's chopping and changing. The one thing I want to say about medication is some people, and I've talked to people in my life who go on one pill. Yeah. And they're like, this doesn't work. Yeah, you have to try others. Guess what? I've been on three. Yeah. And the one that I'm on right now is working. Yeah. But I feel like there might be a better one out there. Yeah. Yep. So don't be like, that doesn't work anyway because it's it's not the case and that's the same with therapy and medication. You need to continue. Yes. It's not, you're not going to get, someone's not going to hug you and, and everything's going to be okay. Exactly. It's a long haul. It's all the time. And when I worked that out, that's when that's when sort of the cloudiness of my head started to clear and it's like mm. I've just accepted it. This is life. Yeah. And I love life for what it is. So now this is how I go about my life and, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. I wouldn't have it any other way. Okay. So you're feeling quite positive about the future now? Oh, there's still stuff that I'm- You working on? I'm immensely, yeah, stressed and worried about. Yeah, I've got, like, I have underlying issues that make me doubt, second guess, feel guilty, feel self-conscious, like, have stigma and stuff. Mm. But I I think, so since probably, it's probably been about two years, Mm. I used to be like, I would think about suicide every day. Wow. Yeah, like every day I saw that as the only way out and I'd give myself time frames like if I'm not better by this age or by this day, oh wow, I'll give up. Yeah. But I'll, I'm at the point now where I'll never do that again. I've accepted life is, this is what my life is yep. and I'm going to do my best to love it mm. and it's going to be challenging but I won't, I'm not going to, like I won't, give up, Yeah. Um, like I'm just going to keep going and there'll be ups and there'll be downs and there'll be times that really suck, but I'll get through them and then there'll be good yeah. times and then a bad one will be right around the corner and that'll be okay, okay as well. That's okay. Yeah, so that's sort of, yeah, there's still times where I'm like, this is sucks, this is the worst I've ever felt, hate, Urgh, like, why am I like this? <laughs> yeah. Why is life this hard? Yeah. But I'll never like, yeah, it, that'll never be an option for me again, which is, yeah, it's. Um, I'm really glad. Yeah, so am I actually. Yeah. Yeah, because there's probably been two times fleeting moments in the last two years where yeah. I've thought about suicide. Yeah. And they would have lasted not very long. And yeah. straight away it's like, nope. No. Like, we don't do that. No. We are, we're on the journey and we're just going to, we're just going to keep going. Yeah. That's yeah. really good to hear. Yeah. And that is normal as well, just by the way. Yeah, I'm sure. Those, those fleeting thoughts, they, they happen. Yeah. But, yeah. So you've, you're on the journey. You're doing, in my eyes, really well. So, Luke, before we wrap up, mm-hmm. do you have any advice for anyone who out there who might be struggling with their mental health, maybe going through something similar to you? What would you say? Uh, I'd say that... Life isn't easy and not everyone's happy all the time and have confidence in yourself that just think of all the things that you've overcome 
like everyone would have overcome something and at the time it was really intense and horrible and but they got through it so take confidence from that take confidence from every setback because you're still you're still here you're still going and yep. you're still you know fighting the good fight um and yeah it's not easy life will throw challenges at you but imagine a perfect life and how boring that would be with no or a book with no conflict or challenges for the main character boring boring you gotta yeah it's the plot it was, yeah <laughs> it's um yeah you you will be okay and continue to reach out and do the best and accept that sometimes it does take effort um but it's it is all worth it in the end um and yeah you'll you'll be okay just enjoy the journey i love that all right thanks luke for coming along thanks for having me so today we're joined by Megan. Megan, would you like to introduce yourself? Of course. I am Megan Ansel. I am a PhD and Master of Clinical Psychology student at UWA. So that means I wear more hats than I would like. <laughs> so I've just finished my last placement on my clinical master's. Yay. Yay. So, um, yeah, I'm not doing that as of last week, but then I'm still doing my PhD, which is about self-stigma, which we're going to talk about today. And then I work a day a week um, as a provisional psychologist at the moment until Mm. my registration comes back um, in a child trauma service. So Alex does the research stuff. I I sure do. You know I love that stuff. So you've just really nicely handed me a segue (laughs) (laughs) because I want to talk about Self-stigma. Yes. So you research this. Hmm. Firstly, can you tell us what it is, but then also what you research in this area? Yeah, of course. So I think it's probably helpful when talking about self-stigma to start by like defining stigma. stigma. Yeah. Yeah. So when we talk about stigma, we mean though the negative ideas that exist about a particular um, group of people in mm-hmm. society, a marginalised group. So these can be ideas about people being um I guess they kind of fall into like being abnormal or undesirable, like right. those sort of ideas. And there's lots of different groups in society mm-hmm. that are stigmatised. So you think about um, mental health stigma is what we're talking about today, but yep. there's also like um, weight stigma, stigma towards the LGBTQIA plus community. Yep. Um, yeah, kind of you name it, I guess, like racial stigma, all yep. of these di- sort of different marginalised groups in society that experience stigma and discrimination. Self-stigma is basically when um, people within that marginalised group hear of or sort of take on those negative ideas and apply them to themselves. Let's say let's use a physical health condition as an example. So a person with asthma might hear someone like a kid with asthma say in the schoolyard hears someone says oh that means you're weak or like you're not good at sport Mm, or whatever yeah that's stigma and then the self-stigma would be if that kid truly like internalizes and thinks that is true of themselves so they think yeah I am I have asthma that means I am weak or like I'm not Mm. good at sport or whatever it is so we know the reason that we're really interested in self-stigma academically is we know that how much people internalize those negative ideas impacts their well-being yeah. So some people will um, sort of like hear of those negative ideas and they might think, oh, you know, I've heard this idea that people with depression are 
just lazy, mm. but that's not true of me. Like I believe that it's um, real and I need support and all that sort of stuff versus yep. someone who thinks um, I have depression, it's because I'm lazy, it's my fault. Right. They tend to do much worse in yep. terms of like um, their self-esteem, whether they seek help, their self-efficacy, so like going out and doing things, mm. um, that sense of empowerment, all of that sort of stuff. So the reason that we're sort of interested in stigma and particularly self-stigma is because we know that it ha- seems to have a really serious impact on people's well-being when they're struggling with mental health disorders. That was a long introduction, <laughs> I guess. That was very comprehensive, though, and yeah. I totally get it. And it sounds as though you can't really look at self-stigma without looking at stigma more broadly because yeah. they would be so entwined. Yeah. The way that, you know, society talks about certain <laughs> everything, but certain mm. conditions, say, in mental health it would be hard not to think that about yourself if you're hearing it constantly. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yep. exactly. And I think it's, I mean, that's one thing that we've been challenged with. I've been challenged with in the research itself is that research often asks you to write papers that are very like about a particular topic. Mm. And in this area, this um, mental health disorder, stigma, self-stigma, they're so intertwined yep. and so complex that sometimes in trying to separate them, um, you know, it's useful for the details sometimes. But yep. when we're talking about it in this context, a bigger picture is much more helpful. Tell me about how you do research into self-stigma because it sounds tricky. So I think my research is about adolescence with anxiety and depression. Okay. So um, there's a few different things. I guess the thing about adolescence and the reason that I'm researching adolescence is that we don't really know anything about, well, not much, not enough about the stigma and self-stigma that adolescents experience. That seems so weird to me mm. because you, you think about growing up, right, and that that time around puberty is when you are so influenced by Mm. society, the people around you. Yeah. That is really surprising that there is not much. Yeah. I think there's a few things. Like there is some research, but it's very limited in that it is um, written using frameworks that were designed for adults or measures that yeah. were designed for adults. And what we know is that adolescents aren't just they're not adults. They're not little adults. Yeah. yeah. Their brains are very different. And as you were saying, like this period is um, of massive cognitive change. Mm. Their brain's asking them um, to sort of like differentiate from their parents and like connect with their peers. Mm. And stigma is something that separates them mm-hmm. from their peers. So we suspect that it's actually much more impactful for adolescents, but we don't have evidence around that but it would make sense that it would be so yeah there's sort of there's that side of it and I guess we're sort of um when you're asking how we study it I guess because of that sort of lack of measures that are appropriate for adolescence or an understanding of what it actually looks like in adolescence Mm. we really had to start at from scratch from scratch yeah so that was fun for me when I say start from scratch we started with qualitative research so that's interviews yes okay so qualitative versus quantitative for Mm. anyone who isn't a research person uh quantitative numbers Mm. qualitative words at the most general sense yeah 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 Yeah. so you were talking to to teenagers? Yeah. So okay. I interviewed um, a bunch of teenagers with anxiety and depression yep. about their experiences of stigma and self-stigma. Mm. And that was great. Like lots of researchers really love quantitative research, mm. but. I don't know. I like qual. Not for me. Not for you. Not <laughs> love for me talk. either. Love a chat. <laughs> <laughs> um, and yeah. And having an arts background, I think as well, that really spoke to my understanding of um, how things work and mm. how to write and that sort of stuff. So yeah, we interviewed lots of adolescents about their experiences. Well, mm. tell me, what did you find? Um, 
we found a few really interesting things. So the first thing I guess to say is that we set out to research self-stigma and in the process of doing those interviews and listening to them sort of in the lead up to talking about self-stigma, talk about stigma, um, we realised that what they were saying about stigma was actually quite different as well to what we knew. So we had to change directions a little bit and say, well, actually someone should (laughs) write about that as well. So it turned into a study about stigma and self-stigma. So the first finding that sort of stopped us and made us examine this sort of idea of stigma in young people is that we found um, these sort of new or different negative ideas or stigmatizing ideas than what had already been sort of established in the literature. So if you look at adult literature or um, sort of like the original literature around stigmatizing ideas about mental health disorders, particularly anxiety and depression, we know these ideas about people being weak rather than Mm. sick is Mm. like a stigma that's existed for a really long time. The idea that people like socially undesirable, so like difficult to be around or boring or a burden, that's something that's Mm. also been around for a long time. But what we hadn't seen before and what I think you know, makes sense if you think about um, our culture and the way things changed is that what young people described experiencing probably more than any of those other ones was this experience of being invalidated or minimised. So having people tell them their condition's not real or they're faking it or it's a trend or they're doing it to get attention. It's really different to what we've seen before. So this is a bit of a a weird question, but the, the thing that came into my mind when you were just speaking just now was that idea of toxic positivity. Mm. You, know, <laughs> you know, like, um, you know, it's you just got to be happy. Do you think that that plays a part? Because that, that's a huge focus right now in mm. especially like social media, like self-help, wellness, all that sort of stuff. I've, I've heard people say, you know, I've turned my depression around by doing yoga, mm. that sort of thing. Does that kind of play into the, this in feeling of invalidation? Yeah, it's hard to say. I wonder if the biggest kind of theory I have, which we don't have data to support, but what I would suspect is that as our acceptance or our conversations around mental health have become more frequent mm. and more prominent, so mm. we talk a lot more about mental health than we have historically, yes, yes. Um, that has increased the level of trivialization of those conditions. So people then saying, well, it's not really real or like back in the day, like we just got yes. on with it or whatever, like yes. it's not real, it's not a problem, blah, blah, blah. The toxic positivity thing I find really interesting because I also wonder, I guess I wonder with that stuff if it's more just like a lack of nuance. Mm. Like I think mental health disorders are so diverse and so individual to um, a unique person that, you know, they're never going to be captured by one person's experience or one person's video or whatever. So then I think this idea about um, toxic positivity, I think, yeah, a lot of the time social media doesn't represent the whole truth, I guess, or like the whole picture. It never does. It just can't. Um, So, yeah, I do think that that may play a part of it is like this talking about mental health in this really upbeat way and seeing like the proliferation of so much content about it Mm. may have then sort of increased this idea that – yeah, their mental health conditions aren't as serious because they seem mm. more common than mm. they used to and things like that. Yeah, mm. I think there's also, and and I'll get you to chime in on this as well, I think there's also this this kind of double-edged sword, right, particularly with stigma. Mm. What, I, what I've seen is that there's social media can really, they, it can validate people, it can be a safe space for people to kind of disclose mm. their journey. But then you're totally right. Like 
there are there's so much more of this whole like oh back in my day we didn't have any mental health issues that's not true but not like true. <laughs> That's a lie. We didn't have a name for it, maybe. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you just kind of yeah. suffered in silence yeah. there, didn't you? Mm. But it's it, it's a very it's a tricky thing because yeah. we don't want to stop talking about mental health. Yes, because that would increase some areas mm. of stigma. But then you do also have this other side of yeah. it, where, yeah. You know, people's unique experiences are invalidated. Yeah, you're right in that. That is nothing but a hugely complex question mm. that we have to sort of come up. Um, I think face as researchers and as clinicians is saying, okay, like uh, what amount of information and what presentation is helpful and what amount of information and presentation is actually unhelpful. So if we know that people self-stigmatizing around particular conditions or ideas they've heard about particular conditions is really unhelpful, mm. um, then how helpful is it for like there to be a TikTok that's like, I do this one thing, yep. I have ADHD or whatever. Yep. Oh. It's hard it is because you want people to have information and there's like massive wait lists to access therapy and all this Mm. sort of stuff so there's this fine balance between being like well you just have to sit you have to find a clinical psychologist or a psychiatrist yeah not accessible not accessible to everybody but then on the other hand it's like but also like if you don't step into those spaces and provide accurate information then you leave a vacuum for misinformation yeah and you know in terms of stigma we know if people are like self-diagnosing a lot and that's inaccurate it may have these other consequences related to self-stigma that we haven't or can't account for yet in Mm. our research Mm. Mm. that's yeah that's a super important point and i was actually going to ask you anyway Mm. kind of about social media more generally so because you know it's it's I can't even follow the TikToks that are coming out. The, the trends that I, I sound like such an old person when hmm. I talk about TikTok. As do I. <laughs> oh my goodness! But I, I guess do you think that stigma? I don't know if it's I don't know the wording, but like, is it more prevalent? Are we talking about things more? Mm. Is there more stigma now because of social media? I don't know. I think. One of my participants put it so beautifully and I quoted her in my paper because I think she's right and I think it reflected what lots of the other young people said, which was that I think the narrative in um, society and in research is that stigma's got less, like things have got much better. Mm. And she said, I don't think stigma's lessened, I think it's changed. And I think that's very true. And in some ways like... Maybe um, the stigma no longer being that that person's dangerous or, Mm. like, can't have a job. Like, maybe um, being invalidated isn't as harmful. We don't really know. But what we do know is it doesn't seem like it's got less. It just seems like the content of those ideas have changed, changed. evolved. Mm. Wow. That was a teenager that you spoke to. Yeah. I think she was, like, 15. How eloquent. (laughs) That's amazing. They were all fantastic, really insightful. That's Mm. really cool. That's also, you know, really highlighting why we need qualitative research just there. That's like yeah. a little ad for qualitative research. This is the sort of stuff that we <laughs> yeah. can uncover. So, Megan, I, I want to also talk about your clinical work. So you hmm. work with um, like within a therapeutic context. Yeah. Is self-stigma something that you see a lot or perhaps do you notice it more because this is your yeah. research area? Yeah, I think that's it's probably column B more. Yeah. Yeah. So I think I notice it a lot because of um, this being sort of where my head's at yeah. in terms of research a lot of the time. What I wonder, we know that self-stigma impacts people's help-seeking. So if you think something's your fault and like- You won't reach out. Yeah. yeah. So what I wonder is if actually 
um, people with really, really high self-stigma, we maybe see less in a clinical setting. Right. Or what happens is people don't present to come and see a therapist until things are really, really bad, really bad and they're quite desperate or really stuck. Yeah. Mm. You know what? I actually think in even my day, my day-to-day life, mm. right, I actually notice that in friends. Mm. I notice that- they will come to me in crisis mm. asking for advice, you know, should I go and see a psychologist? Should I go and see a, a counsellor? Yeah. And it's gotten to a point where I'm like, you probably, like, you, you could have gone earlier. Yeah. But they don't. And, it, of it's course, hard. it yeah. is hard. I recognise it. It's, like, mm. one of the most hard, the hardest things to do is to to yeah. ask for help. Yeah. But it is that exactly what you were saying, like, oh, I didn't want to be seen as weak. Mm. In fact, I actually remember in my psychology degree mm. where where they're training to be to be psychologists mm. and um one of the the people in my class was like she confided in me that she was going to see a psychologist and she's like oh my gosh I'm so embarrassed mm. and I'm like all right we need to we need to take a look at this mm. like we're we're doing psychology yeah it's we should do a lot we, of shame about it. There's so much shame. Mm. There should not be this shame. Yeah. But it's a huge mountain Absolutely. to overcome. Yeah. And I think it's an important thing to talk about. Like, as you said, um, you know, there's no wrong time to, to mm. seek professional help. Mm. And, um, you know, people come in crisis and that's the job, right? People come and they're really struggling and that's completely fine. Like yeah. the best time to come is when you decide to come and come in and yes. we'll work with you where you're at at that time. But there is something to be said for like, if there's so much shame around it yeah. that people don't come until things are really bad, that's a problem. how much more effective could we have been yeah. if we had a little bit more time or things weren't quite as bad yeah. when you first came in? And, you know, that life's like that. Like, oh, totally. <laughs> you, you, you have other out, things. But You've got other things to yeah, deal with. From a research perspective, you kind of go off. We can reduce the shame around help seeking and I think self-stigma certainly plays a role in that. Like what would it mean about me mm. if I had to go and get professional help or if I got that diagnosis? Um, yeah, I think it it could be really important for improving when people seek help and that might mean they don't need as much or as intensive support. Yeah. And like obviously for me, I'm on a human perspective, I'm like that's nicer from for the individual. But on this sort of like bigger policy perspective, you go, it's also cheaper mm. and it's also more effective. And like for our society as a whole. Exactly. If people seek help sooner and then need yep. sort of less, we're doing better. That's, really. that's a really good mm. point. If we can, I mean, that is the whole argument behind prevention and early intervention, mm. right? Like we want to get people feeling better or kind of bouncing back faster mm. so that they're not in this this crisis mode and that, you know, they need a whole heap of support to get yeah. through. Yeah. That's totally. And, you know, people do get in. There's sometimes it's unavoidable mm. and a lot of the time the reasons that people have really high um, self-stigma or avoid help seeking, you know, you hear their stories and you think, yeah, that yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Like, oh, completely. totally. But if you think about it on a macro scale, not on an individual scale, mm. you go, yeah, my God, it would be good if we could like reduce the shame around it and make it a bit Absolutely. easier to access help. Absolutely. Whether that be in childhood or, you know, yep. adolescence, whatever. Or oh, mm. just across the life, really. Yeah. Like, 
I, I do want to make it very clear to anybody listening that self-stigma is actually, it is a huge problem, right? Yeah. Like mm. it's not trivial. This I hear this sort of stuff, this language that contributes to self-stigma or stigma in general mm. all the time. Yeah. All the time. And sometimes I don't even pick up on it until later and I'm reflecting. I'm like, oh, mm. what that person was saying is actually really inaccurate and could be harmful yeah. to anyone else listening. Mm. Um, yeah. So mm. I actually I want to pick up as well. I've noticed definitely that certain mental health diagnoses come with more stigma. Yeah. Do you reckon that's actually a thing? Yeah. So that we do have some um, pretty good research to support that and we know that certain conditions are much more highly stigmatised than others. Yeah. So um, schizophrenia, yep. it's pretty usually comes out as like the most highly stigmatised mental health condition and mm. then there's some others, um, AUPD, which used yep. to be borderline, borderline. is often yep. still referred to as borderline Um up there as well, a few of the other like antisocial personality disorders. We know there's a lot of stigma. Mm. Um, there's like sort of emerging evidence that that might be related to those ideas of like danger or fear. Right. So like if some if there's an idea that someone could be dangerous mm. or um, that like we know that there's lots of treatments that help people recover from those conditions or manage those conditions across the lifespan. But if there's this idea that people maybe can't recover or it's harder to treat, yeah. the stigma seems to be higher. So, yeah, it's certainly an issue across mental health disorders, but there's certain ones that people, um, yeah, there's certainly more shame, I think, mm. around. Mm. Yeah, that's definitely what I've ex- what I've seen and, and heard. Yeah, yeah. So I guess... One big question is what can we do? Mm. Like stigma is all around us. What mm. can we do to try and like protect ourselves and and kind of not have this stigma and self-stigma impact us so greatly, especially if we've got mental health conditions? It's a good question mm. and a big question. Yeah. I think there's a few different sort of levels you're talking about, right, because mm. one of them is – if we're talking about stigma, it's like how do we approach it as a culture and as a society and what messaging yeah. do we use, especially if we're seeing that um, like the messaging around normalising has maybe led to some trivialising. Yeah. And, you know, I'm not. we don't know that that's worse than the ideas we've mm. had before, but we're not sure, right? So yeah. we need to be really careful about yeah, what going messaging too, we're yeah, using. Too far the other yeah, way. Yeah. 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 Um, so I think there's some questions certainly for, like, policymakers, and there's lots of researchers out there that are really focused on that, like, public health yeah. kind of perspective and um, the Mental Health Commission is doing a massive project related to stigma, self-stigma um, at the moment. Yeah, oh, cool. I was on a steering committee for their self-stigma. Look at you. I know. <laughs> Mostly listening, but I was there. You were there. You are very important. <laughs> yeah. um, so I think there's some really great things happening, but I do think it's a big complex question and it's probably something that in a lot of ways we may need to move on before we have all of the data yeah. because if we wait till we have all the data we'll then be waiting it forever. might be yeah, yeah. Too late yeah mm. so i would say that there's certainly um like things that can be done in society generally and a lot mm. of that is to do with providing people with really good education okay. about mental health disorders to be able to dispel some of those myths mm. um and also i guess like kind of contextualise where these ideas have come from and give people the kind of intellectual tools to be able to challenge those negative ideas. In terms of self-stigma, lots of people have designed um, like interventions for self-stigma and none of Mm. them seem to have 
like there's bits and pieces of like kind of moderate evidence, but none of them is like this really works or like this really helps Damn. people. <laughs> yeah, it's very okay. depressing. That's, yes, that kind of sucks. But I think if you um. <laughs> There's some things that might have some elements that are promising, but basically we're not there yet. Yeah. It's what it is. Um, my perspective on it is kind of like if you take if you take a step back, nobody with mental illness, self-stigma related to their mental health disorder is experiencing that in a vacuum. Mm. It's part of a constellation of challenges they face as someone with a mental health disorder, and that looks different on every single person, but every time it's a constellation, it's not one thing. Mm. So I think the way that I understand it and, like, if I hear it come up in clinical practice, I think there are frameworks. Like, we understand what we can do to support people with a lot of, like, negative ruminations, lots of negative thoughts or a lot of self-criticism. And I think until we know more about self-stigma specifically, there are things that we can do Mm. that are, like, it's a similar model and we can support people with that. So, you know, we know things like going to therapy, things like cognitive behaviour therapy, acceptance, commitment therapy. There's lots of really strong evidence-based therapies that I expect we don't have the evidence for but would also address Mm, mm. um, self-stigma being a negative thought about yourself that you have coming up a lot of the time. So there's that and then things like, um, mindfulness and self-compassion are all things that sort of have fantastic evidence and really great promise in like similar difficult emotional experiences and I expect would also yeah. help people with self-stigma. But it's one of those things that for everybody with a mental health disorder, it's looking a little bit different yeah. depending on what's going on for them. So it's really about finding things um, that sort of speak to what their challenges is and what those ideas are that are coming up for them the most and why they're difficult and all mm. that sort of stuff. Mm. Mm. Yeah. So again, it's complex. I think that's that's much the same. Unfortunately. For, yeah. I mean, yeah. I, I I deal with the same thing mm. in trauma research. Right. Yeah. It's, it's pretty individualized, and each Depends. person is a different person. You know. Yeah. But there are things that we can do. Yeah. To try and lessen mm. the impact. Yes. Cool. Thank you, Megan. Yeah. That was welcome. Very interesting. Me. <laughs>